Good evening, guys. We are live. I'll just let it catch up for a few seconds. And we'll get that shared. Good evening, guys. Welcome to season two of Alive and Undrugged, um, episode two. Uh, we are with Steve Rafe tonight. Um, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, uh, Cannabis, uh, CBD, uh, and Mr. James Jeffries. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for coming on. It's been a long time coming. No problem, mate. Thank you for having us. I've uh, been watching your work and thoroughly enjoyed it, mate. So uh, it's always good to make time for somebody who uh, is, is good at what he's doing, mate, and uh, looking forward to uh, speaking to you. Cheers, mate. I appreciate that. Um, what I thought we'd do tonight is I thought I'd like to introduce people to the real Steve Rafe. People see you on online and, the, you know, the the listen to your podcasts and stuff like that, but I don't think people know you that well. So can we just go back to the start and um, let me know where you started, really? Yeah, I mean, I was born in South Shields, so I'm, I'm not a proper Geordie. I'm a sand dancer, um, but I never lived in South Shields. I always lived uh, on the banks of the Tyne, but on the Gateshead side. Um, you know, I had a great childhood, very lucky in the sense that I had two parents who were fit and healthy and who were working uh, all the hours God sends uh, to put food on the table. Um, I would say it was probably a middle class upbringing as opposed to a working class, although we lived, you know, we lived in and around a, a big working class area in Gateshead. Um, I went to a, a state school um, for, for the first few years of my education, but um, the school, if there'd been an Ofsted uh, nowadays, would have would have failed miserably. And um, within the first two years, my parents realised that I was simply not learning anything at school. I couldn't read, I couldn't write, uh, and I couldn't add up. Um, so luckily, again, uh, the parents stepped in and, um, you know, they, they decided to put me into private education. And um, it was a big strain on the finances for them, but they they put me into a, a school in South Shields where I was born, and then they moved me from there to a school in Sunderland where I finished my education. And uh, in those final few years at school, the ambition was always to be an actor. Um, I was uh, going to a theatre school uh, from the age of eleven at the People's Theatre in Newcastle um, with the likes of uh, Tom Goodman-Hill, who's gone on to star in many things over the years, and, and Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys. And, you know, we were, you know, we, you know, we were putting on plays, maybe three or four plays a year. Um, I got to tour. Uh, I got to tour some fantastic places. I went to America for three, three uh, weeks uh, when I was 13 years of age. I went to New Jersey, Philadelphia and New York. Uh, and then when I was 16, I went to Russia for a couple of weeks and I played the Artful Dodger. So I really didn't stick in at school, Jack. I, um, I basically had the ambition of being an actor and I felt that being an actor meant I didn't really have to study. So at school, I was the class clown. Um, I, I used to entertain the, the other pupils um, at the expense of my education, it has to be said. And I had a lot of personality clashes with, with the teachers at school. And, you know, I just spent more time outside the headmaster's office and inside the headmaster's office getting, you know, getting disciplined by him, um, you know, whether it be the strap or the cane, which, is, which was perfectly legal in those days, um, or getting the detention. Um, and... Yeah, school just school and, and me just didn't didn't work. We didn't we just didn't see eye to eye. Um, however, the the path of my life probably changed direction while I was at school when an English teacher um, had to go for some operation and he never came back. And, and a new English teacher came in, and I was in the first year of doing GCSE exams. And as part of the curriculum, you you would do fifty percent coursework and fifty percent exam work. And they gave me the option of uh, the new teacher, uh, Peter Yates, gave me the option of studying a book which I was reading at home, which was unheard of, really. Um, instead of doing just the curriculum books, which at the time was uh, Macbeth, um, Day of the, uh, the Triffids by John Wyndham, I think, and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Um, he gave me an option of doing a book. And I picked up a book at a, uh, on a Quayside Market on a Sunday morning. And it was a, an orange book with a black and white photo on the front of these two well-dressed guys, one with his head straight forward and another one with his head over his shoulder. And these two guys, of course, were the Cray Twins. The book was a pro The Profession of Violence by John Pearson. Mm -hmm. And I, I read that book back to back within two days of buying it. I, I purchased the book. It was something about the cover that pulled me in. 
paid 30 pence for it. And then I read it again a couple of weeks later and um, I was obsessed. I was, I was, I was at that time, 14 years of age and I was obsessed with these two guys and I loved the story. Um, you know, I loved the cars. I loved the fact that, you know, they were smartly dressed. I loved the boxing. I loved the nightclubs and the, the nightlife. I loved the, the flash motors and the, you know, the girl on the end of the arm and, um, and, and the photographs with celebrities. This was everything that a 14 year old boy on Tyneside wanted in his life. And these two guys had it. And I thought, well, you know, you know, this this is a fantastic story. So along with me posters on my wall of Peter Beardsley, Kevin Keegan and Chris Waddle, of course, I was a big Newcastle fan, uh, went a, 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 a homemade poster of uh, the Cray Twins. And um, I, I went from not passing any exams at school to suddenly having this interest in English because I was allowed to study that as part of the curriculum by Peter Yates, my English teacher. And I'm glad to say when I got to 16 and did my GCSEs, I passed English language and I passed English literature. Uh, I passed geography as well. I still don't know how I passed it, but I think it was probably because I could find my way to school. Um, but yeah, that was it, Jack. I um, I I'd passed my exams because of the craze. And that in itself um, was something that led to me writing a letter to both Ronnie and Reggie, who were both locked up at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, yes, great book. Uh, that was one of the first books that um, that I read. Actually, one of the first crime books that that that, that I read um, back in the day. I, I didn't like you. I had trouble with um, uh, with with my uh, English and well, everything really. Dyslexic, so uh, quite badly. And so I didn't learn to read all right till I was twenty-one. And um, you, you you know, but that book, it, I don't know it. it, it I don't think it made me want to be a gangster or anything like that, but it it made me take notice, and I think you do. Um, it's that uh, kind of the old guard, the old way. You know, I speak a lot about the old guard. Um, I still have it. I picked it up a, a few months ago. Um, so, so you wrote to the craze. Um, what went on then? Yeah, I wrote to Ronnie and I wrote to Reggie. Ronnie Cray was in uh, Broadmoor at the time, Broadmoor Hospital uh, for the criminally insane. Reggie was in Gartree Prison, uh, which is a maximum security prison. And uh, yeah, I wrote to them. And within a couple of days, I, I got a reply back from Reggie, first of all, just to say, you know, thank you for, for the letter. Uh, sadly, we kind of keep up with correspondence, but, you know, thank you for your support. Uh, and then a couple of days later, I got exactly the same reply from Ronnie Gray. Uh, you know, thank you for the letter, kind of keep up, uh, you know, any any contact, but, you know, much appreciated for your support. And those two letters, you know, I gave them pride of place in, in, in my house. And um, I didn't really pursue it after that. I just left it. And, and um, subsequently, other books came out. Uh, Murder Without Conviction by uh, John Dixon came out. And, um, you know, I read that. And then uh, Tony Lambriano's biography came out. So my interest from the craze was growing. Um, but I had no intention of writing back to them. And then my mom came home with a, a woman's uh, gossip magazine called Take a Break. And within that, uh, within that magazine uh, was a double-page spread on this young guy called Brad Lane who lived in Doncaster in a place called Dunscroft with his mother. And he was only 11 years of age. And the photographs were of him in a suit and a white shirt and a tie and some smart shoes. And the headline screamed out, I, you know, I am Reggie Cray's son. And ultimately what the situation was, was that, you know, Kim, his mom and, and Brad had, had written to Reg and he'd written back and then he'd ended up going on a visit. And subsequently they built up this relationship where, you know, Reg wanted to adopt Brad as his son. Um, and that really relit the, the interest for me. So I, I decided to write to Kim and his, and, you know, and, and her son, uh, Brad, and I'd stuck a letter in just saying I'd written to Reg, I'd had a reply, you know, and, you know, just please pass on me best wishes and, you know, uh, be interesting if I'm ever down in Doncaster to, to possibly meet up with them, you know, and I left it at that. And I didn't get a reply for a couple of months and I, I'd put it to the back of my mind. And then one day a letter came through the post from Brad and Kim, just 
you know, a, a two-page letter saying, sorry, we didn't get back to you sooner. We would have liked to have, um, you know, we would like to have, and, you know, we hope this finds you well. And we've included a couple of photographs you might not have seen of Reg and Ron, and they were just black and white photo stats. And I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And at the top, they'd put the phone number and they said, we're looking at doing some memorabilia and merchandise. And at the time I'd left school, and I'd gone into doing T-shirts. I was making T-shirts of former Newcastle players and, and current Newcastle players, you know, just designing them, sticking them on T-shirts and then sticking them in, you know, sticking them on sale outside the ground and making a few quid. And we just decided then, look, let's do one of the craze. So we mocked up one of the craze, me and me mate. And, um, you know, we, we sent it down to, to, to Kim for, for her eyes and she mentioned it to Reg and Reg liked the idea. And, I was going down to Doncaster um, for uh, you know a, a bit of a, a bit of a holiday really. My mate lived in Scunthorpe, and I mentioned it to them that I was coming down, and they said, "Look, why don't you come and see us on one of the days that you're down here?" So that was it. Um, I went I went down to Doncaster uh, on this day, and um, Brad and Kim picked me up at the station. They took me down to their terraced house in Dunscroft, and um, you know we, you know we got uh, talking. We had a cup there, and then Brad. And Kim took me upstairs and showed me the spare bedroom. And I walked in and it was like a shrine to the Cray Twins. Um, in the wardrobe were some of Reg's old suits. Um, on the wall were, were various photographs, which I'd never seen before, and pictures. There was a picture disc up there, which Reg had recently released. There was books. Uh, and then there was this box of old photos. And in the box of old photos was Ronnie and Red, uh, was Reggie and Francis's wedding photographs, which of course were taken by David Bailey. It was it was the ultimate Cray Museum in a terraced house in Doncaster, and I was fascinated and you know like a like a kid in the proverbial sweet shop, I guess. Mm. Anyway, we went back downstairs. I was getting ready to go, and then the phone rang, and Brad rang straight to the phone. He was like, "It'll be Dad. It'll be Dad." And he went and picked the phone up, and of course, it was Reggie Cray on the phone. And uh, he had a chat with him, and then he passed the phone to Kim. And then Kim said, Reg, would like to have a word with you. And that was it. I, I went across, I took the receiver off Kim and I spoke to, to Reggie Cray for the first time. And it was it was a bit of a, a landmark moment. You know, I'd read the books, I'd, you know, got to know this person in the media. But, you know, and here I am now speaking to him on the telephone. And uh, it was a brief chat. Um, you know, he, he just said, you must be Steve from Newcastle and I heard a bit about you. I like the T-shirt idea. Would you like to come down and visit me? And you know, I was I was blown away, you know, the, the trip down to see Brad and Kim had been everything I'd hoped it would be and a bit more. And of course, I said to Reg, yes, I, I would love to go and visit them. Yeah, that, that must have been um, a bit nerve wracking, um, like when, when you first walked into to see him. Yeah, like, it was. I mean, you know, the, the visit happened a couple of weeks later. Um, and, and from my perspective, I'd never been to a prison before. And of course, he was in Gartree Prison, as I've already mentioned, which is category AA. So for my very first prison visit, you know, it was to, you know, going somewhere which was actually, um, you know, maximum security. And I just remember driving up to the prison. It was a lovely, warm, hot summer's day. And I remember getting outside the ground, outside outside the grounds of the prison, and then walking across to the, the you know the the first visiting area and, and going into the to, to hand over the VO to the uh, the you know the the screw, um you know sticking our stuff in the locker and then being guided through a succession of security gates and um you know big huge doors with which you know you had no chance of getting back out of and it was a realization of what prison actually is you know you don't think about what prison is until you actually go into one um at the time it wasn't the same as it is now i mean you know i go to visit people now and you know you have the sniffer dogs you have you know you have like airport security it wasn't as strict in those days but you were still searched and um you know things were a little bit slacker you could probably smuggle stuff in a little bit easier back in those days but then once you were into the confines of the prison and you'd gone through all your security checks you were walked into the main visiting area and Gartry at that time which of course was the the early 90s uh, was like this huge, vast, like, room. Um, and I just remember the noise. I remember walking in and this noise greetiness of kids screaming and running around and, you know, um, you know, family families visiting their loved ones in, in, in jail. And we were probably one of the last ones to get through on this particular day. Uh, but we got, you know, as you walked into the door, the prison officer standing there and, you know, we, yeah, we're here to visit Cray. You know, yeah, you're on this table. Then we... 
walked down to the table where we where we were sat. Um, there was three chairs on one side of the table and one on the other where Reg was going to sit. And then we just, you know, we sat and waited. Kim went over to the canteen, which was on the far side, to go and get uh, Reg some refreshments. And um, as she was doing that, right at the far end, we saw the door open, this big screw walking through the door. And then this little grey-haired guy, um, he had a blue and white striped prison shirt on, unbuttoned down to the navel, silver cross um, around his neck, pair of blue jeans on, uh, and a pair of Reebok trainers, and a big gold bracelet. And uh, he came down, and as he came down, Brad ran up to him, he rubbed his hair and gave him a cuddle, and, you know, then Kim came over, she just put the refreshments down, she gave Reg a, a big kiss, and then um, he shook my hand, and he just says, you must be Steve from Newcastle. And and that was it, We you know, I'd just met Reggie Crane. And, and the first the first feeling uh, was was one of... Wow, this is like <laughs> this is mental. And, and I, I went with the flow on you know throughout my life. I've always just gone with the flow. I was never visibly blown away, but inside I was thinking, this is this is quite a monumental occasion. And I took it all in. And he had very a very firm handshake. He, he'd actually just won or he just held the record for the for the bench press in Gartry on that occasion because he was he was just over 56 57 when I met him um, and he was still physically fit you know and he trained every day he boxed he's you know he, he trained down the gym so ultimately um you know this was this was red you know still in his prime if not the best shape he'd probably ever been um you know both physically and mentally the visit itself was was quite unique as well. I mean, I got to see the dynamics between him and Kim and, you know, he would speak to, to speak to Kim and then, you know, Brad would take his attention. Brad was always vying for his attention and as, as an 11 year old, you know, did, um, you know, or, or does. And, and, you know, then he would break conversation. He would speak to Kim. Have you spoken to this person? Have you done this? Have you done that? And about 20 minutes before the end of the visit, he donated a lot of that time to me and wanted to know a bit about me, you know, where I was brought up, what football team I supported, uh, what work I did, what, what, what my hopes and ambitions were, was I into boxing, um, you know, and just a, a whole host of questions. And then broached the subject of the T-shirts, which, I, which, you know, Kim had mentioned to him. And he says he liked the idea and, you know, that I would need to go and see Ron. Um, and, you know, he suggested that I did that sooner rather than later. Um, and that was it. Um, the visit was over. Um, I, had a, I had a handshake from Reg to say that the T-shirts were a goer as long as Ron was happy. And the next job was to, to sort out a visit to see Ronnie Crane Broadmoor. Yeah, so... Reg always seemed like the one that was um, more down to earth. Ron, obviously, you know, in, in Broadmoor, which is an impo more imposing place than most prisons, I suppose. Um, can, can you tell me about him? Yeah, Ronnie Cray was, um, you know, Ronnie Cray was a different kettle of fish altogether. I mean, he was a fascinating character um, as I got to know him over the years. But that very first trip to Broadmoor was, was, Quite tiring because I had to um, I had to get three trains to get there for starters. I had to go from Newcastle to King's Cross, King's Cross to Redden, and then Redden to Berkshire. Um, and then I met Brad and came in Berkshire, and then they drove me from you know the the, the station at Crowthorne up to uh, up to Broadmoor itself. Um, you know, I got a photograph of the day there, which you know cameras and cam no such thing as camera phones. Cameras were like year old wind on cameras back in the day, but I have got a photograph of that 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 particular occasion. And it was a big old Victorian building. You'll have seen photographs or videos, footage of it on TV over the over the years. Um, and it was just starting to be redeveloped. Um, but we were still using the old section of Broadmoor. And again, you would go in, um, you would you would hand over your 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 proof of identification and your your visiting order, and then you would sit and wait. Your number would be called, and you would be taken through the doors. And then you would be walked across the old Victorian, uh, the Victorian um, courtyard into the main building, which housed uh, the different houses and the different wings and there was in the different wards, as they were called. And there was, you know, Somerset Ward, Taunton Ward, uh, you know, which which is where Ron predominantly was. And I didn't really cotton on until the second or third visit. But on the first first day, I was walking down these, you know, these uh, walkways and, uh, and I hadn't cottoned on to the fact that on the left we were actually walking past the, the rooms where the people were actually living where, where they were kept when we walked past Ron's room on that first day and I hadn't realised as we came to the visiting area 
it was a big like theater room uh you would walk in on the left hand side was a stage uh there was the red velvet curtains on either side and this is where the the, the patients did performances um, and then the tables and chairs were set out. Uh, they weren't static and, and tied down like the ones in prison, uh, but they were all tied down. And then the far corner, uh, there was like a refreshment area, but you couldn't go to that refreshment area. Um, the nurses would come in and serve you at your table. And at the very far end, um, there was a there was a big uh, open open door uh, conservatory out into the gardens, um, where if you'd booked to go into the gardens with the patient, then you you could go. You couldn't just walk out there at your will. Um, anyway, we sat in the middle of the room again, very similar to Reg. They always insisted on in sitting in the middle of the room so that they could survey all around them. And we waited. And Ron always used to like to arrive late. And he always used to like leave early on a visit. Um, but when Ron came in, he made a big entrance. And again, he's very small. I'm six foot two. The twins were five foot eight, five foot nine. And, you know, he, he arrived and he, he didn't have a hair out of place. His hair was slicked back. Again, it was dark, but with, with grey flecks in it. Um, he had some gold horn-rimmed glasses on. He had uh, a lovely pinstripe suit, black with white pinstripes fresh white shirt, RK embroidered into his, uh, into his shirt pocket, um, a tie with a gold tie pin, a pair of Gucci shoes and a pinky ring. And as he walked towards us, you know, he, he just carried that air of menace. It has to be said. Um, he was very much stuck in a time warp. He was living in a time warp. Reg was living in the real world, uh, but Ron was still carrying that air of the 1960s. Uh, and again, he wasn't as welcoming with Brad, but he gave Kim a, a kiss and then he, you know, he shook my hand and again, a very strong grip. Difference between Reg and Ron was very piercing black eyes. And um, the eyes looked through you and you could tell that this man, you know, clearly had issues and, and clearly was a dangerous man, uh, despite the amount of drugs that he was taking, Stematol, et cetera, inside Broadmoor. But, um, but yeah, I found the visit fascinating. Um, he had a lot more time for me and he's opening line. It always amuses me. You know, he put his hand on, on, on my leg and he just goes, um, Steve, you don't mind that I'm bisexual, do you? And I, I laughed and I went, look, Ron, I says, I'm not that way inclined. So as long as you've got no desires on me. And he just looked over his glasses and went, good, good. As he took a drawer on his John Player special. And that was one of the things that he did on a regular basis. During the visits, he would smoke, chain smoke, anything in the region of 30 to, 30 to 40 John Player specials. He would never finish the cigarette. He would smoke it halfway down, he would stub it out, and then he'd click his fingers and the nurse would come over and light another cigarette. And, um, yeah, he was fascinating. He was interested in me, interested in what I was doing. Um, you know, he was more interested in current affairs. He wasn't as business-orientated uh, as Reg was on visits, but he just had a general interest in what was going on in the outside world. Um, he was a bit of a gossip, um, and he liked he liked to have a laugh and um, generally just completely different to, to Reg in, in the sense of, you know, how he would conduct these visits. And um, at the end of the visit, the very first one, he said um, that he would like to take us on a cruise. Now, the significance of a cruise to me and somebody who was bisexual um, didn't quite didn't quite grasp it at that, that young age that I was at. And bearing in mind, I was, you know, I was I was 16 years of old coming on to 17 at this particular time. And um he said, would you like to come on a cruise when I get out? And I went, yeah, yeah, that would be great. Never, you know, never thinking for a minute you'd get out anyway. Um, but a few days later, when I got home, um, there was a thud uh, through, through the letterbox. My mum shouted up the stairs and she went, Stephen, um, there's, a, there's a bit of post for you. It looks like it's from one of the twins. And it was a big full scap envelope with Ron's writing on the front. And as I opened it up, I laughed because... Out of it came a full brochure for uh, cruises, Hispanic cruises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I mean, years later, I mean, he passed away in 95. It's why when I went to, to, to Ron's funeral, um, I was I was bodyguard at the funeral for, for Charlie Prayer, the elder brother. Um, I, you know, I sent a wreath with the, you know, with it with a cruise ship on with Ron on the side. So, yeah, it's um, fascinating, you know, going back and, and just remembering those days, you know. So... There's, there's a lot of films about the craze. Um, which one would you say is the closest to how they were perceived by you? 
Oh, there's no doubt about it. Ray Burdus and Dominic, and Dominic Anciano's version of The Craze, uh, which was you know released in 1990, is the most accurate. Um, very difficult to cram the Craze life into two hours of cinema uh, cinematography, uh, but those you know those performances by the Kemp brothers um, were probably the best as well for you know for performance. I would have said um, Legend had a huge budget, and I think it could have been so much better. Um, I, I just feel. You know, the Tom Hardy's performance as Reg was okay, it was good. Um, I felt that he overhammed uh, the performance of Ron. And look, I wasn't around in the 60s. I can't tell you what they were like personally, but I've spent a lot of time in the company of people who did know the twins and who could give a very good you know, impression of, of what these people were like. And of course, there is footage of the craze, albeit very little, but there is a bit of footage of them being interviewed on the BBC where they speak very quietly, very nasally, and, um, you know, almost at times effeminately. And that is the performance which you would be looking for, I guess, from, from somebody who was going to portray the craze. But, yeah, I mean, I think as well, I mean, and I've just interviewed Ray Burdus for, for a, a podcast on my channel, which will come out in a few weeks' time. And, and we specifically talk about the craze film. And I, and I did say to him, you know, what would you, you know, what would you have thought, you know, that, about other craze film being made and would you be surprised to know that yours had still stood the test of time and he he, he said yeah he says I'm I'm delighted because it shows that we made the right decisions and I, th I think he did I mean if you're going to be critical of the the, the Burdus Antiano film um, then it's, it's possibly the casting of Tom Bell as Jack the Hat I think Tom Bell plays a really good part by the way um, but Jack the Hat was was the same height as me. You know, he was six foot two. He was a big burly man. Yeah. His um, his party trick was that he used to walk on his hands. Um, you know that tells you how strong the guy was. Um, so to portray him as this bumbling idiot little guy, you know, with a bald head under his hat, slightly misleading. Um, but yeah, I just think from the storyline purposes, it was great. Stephen Burkoff gives such a great performance as George Cornell. And Billy Whitelaw, of course, plays as Violet Cray um, fantastically well as well. Some, some really good performances, some strong performances in it. And um, the twins weren't happy with it, of course. The twins were, were disappointed in the film because their mother swears in the film. And, mm. of course, they insisted that Violet never swore in real life. Um, I guess from a craze connoisseur point of view, I think the only thing that disappoints me about the Birdus film is, is the lack of action from Charlie Cray. You know, there's, there's not a great... There's not a great um, depth to Charlie's character. He's in it, but he doesn't really feature in it. And I know that, you know, Charlie didn't have a great deal to do um, in, in, you know, in the major events in the career story, but I think there could have been a little, a little bit more could have been made of him. And subsequent films that have been made about the craze have followed in the same vein. There's never really been anything done with regards to Charlie, which means he's a little bit of an oversight, which is a little bit unfair on him, I think. Yeah, I mean, as you know, and as you can see, I'm a big film connoisseur. Um, the Craze, the original Craze film, the Birdies film, is one of the films that got me into looking at films and, and, and wanting to make films because of the way that it was done, especially with the... Um, the the the, the poem. Um, I've I'm, I've got a great interest in poetry, as you know, and uh, the, the 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 poem in, in there, when the you know the stood and the read from the book in in the uh, in the classroom, and their favourite word is crocodile. Um, that really affected me as a writer, um, and it did make me want to look into that world, I guess which is why I kind of sort of nothing that uh, big, but it's kind of why I stepped in to have a look. I am interested in Charlie. Tell, what can you tell me about Charlie? Well, Charlie was a completely different kettle of fish again for, for me. I mean, he was very like um, a wicked uncle for me in, in the sense that he, you know, he was on the outside. So I wasn't having to visit him in prison at the time when I first met him. Um, and we just built up a social relationship. He opened a lot of the doors in London for me, um, you know, which which was very kind of him. He didn't have to do that. Uh, but he, he took me out to the clubs and the bars. And, you know, as I got older, 
um, you know, I, I, I became, you know, became a, a regular in London and got to, you know, to visit a lot of these places on my own. But yeah, he was a social, social animal. Um, you know, he enjoyed the company of uh, ladies as well, which, you know, was was just typical of him. He was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a showboater, but somebody who was, um, you know, always, always the life and soul of a party. And um, yeah, I got to know him really well. And the, the problem, the problems always were between him and the twins um, that they always felt that he was making money on the outside and he wasn't giving anything to them and he was making money off their name. So they did have a lot of did have a lot of arguments. I, I was in the middle of one one of these particular arguments when I, I'd started making the T-shirts and the T-shirts were doing well in Newcastle. And then we branched out to Sunderland and Middlesbrough and then down to Yorkshire. And eventually the T-shirts were, were, were getting, you know, traction all over the UK. And I had been approached to do some in Lo London. And in the old days, believe it or not, you know, this was all done on the phone or it was done by letter. Uh, there was no computers at the time. Computers were in their infancy, really just starting out. And we, you know, we we were at the very forefront of, of the craze merchandise by this point. And we got a, a guy who wouldn't take our T-shirts in London because there was somebody already producing them. So, you know, I had to, you know, find out who was trying to do these T-shirts. It took me two weeks to find out. And eventually I got given a number for a, a, like a, an antique shop in Croydon. And I had to ring up on a Wednesday afternoon to speak to the person who was doing these T-shirts. And it turned out this person uh, was Charlie Cray. Um, <laughs> so I had to go back to the twins and say, it's your brother. Who is who is making these T-shirts, and and that's the reason we can't put them on sale down in uh, in London. They weren't very happy, as you can imagine. And for a year, they didn't speak to him. Um, I've got letters which um, I still have today, where you know they refer to Charlie as Mister X. Have you heard anything from Mister X? They wouldn't even give him the they wouldn't even give him the surname anymore, and um, which which is bizarre. But ultimately, with Charlie, um, you know, he, he didn't have a great deal of money. He was living. He was living day to day, week to week. Um, you know, he had he had a girlfriend who we lived with at the time, and um, you know, he he made bits and bobs here and there. He did okay off the nineteen ninety film and off the subsequent release of videotapes um, and and rentals at places like blockbusters. Uh, but gradually, that money just weaned away. He wasted it, drank it, whatever. You know. Um, the sad, the, the sad thing was that, you know, he was always going to be a target because of his name. And subsequently, you know, he ended up being targeted by the police. And unfortunately, like his brothers, he ended up back behind bars and eventually dying in prison. Yeah, I always found the Charlie's story to be quite sad. Um, what was the book? Is it the, the Craze My Brothers and Me, is it the book? Um, great book. Um, I always thought that he got the raw end of the deal. Um, do you think they um, were they un un unjustly punished for, for so long? Do you think? I think so, me. Yeah, because look, uh, you know, the, the Richardsons, for example, were their biggest rivals, and they were, you know, they were given hefty sentences in and around the 60s at the same time. And, you know, they were finally released. Um, the great train robbers who robbed money from the from the, the Queen's train uh, were given horrendous sentences, but they saw the light of day. So the craze, yes, uh, they murdered a man apiece. Uh, they were suspected, of course, of, of other murders, which were never proven. Um, but, you know, were they unfairly treated? Um, yeah, because they were political prisoners. And why were the political prisoners? Well, because of what they were doing behind the scenes. They, they ultimately um, had both sides of the Houses of Parliament um, entrenched in sleaze. Uh, for example, Lord Boothby, uh, who was, was a, a conservative peer, uh, very good friends with Winston Churchill, of course. Um, you know, he had a, a tendency for young boys and had, you know, infamously been photographed with Ronnie Crabbe, you know, whining and dining them at, at his residence at the Houses of Parliament. And, you know, that was then, you know, photograph was then circulated to the newspapers and the headlines screamed gangster in the pier. Um, you know, huge damage to, to Boothby's reputation, but a huge boost to the craze. And, and, and for, for Boothby, um, he also had stood up in the Houses of Parliament and actually spoke up for the craze on, on, on one occasion. So, you know, it, it became 
it became embarrassing for the Conservatives, but it was also embarrassing for Labour because Tom Dryberg, who was a, a Labour MP, also had a tendency for young boys and had also been photographed with the twins and was also embroiled in whatever seeding, seediness was going on, um, you know, in Cedra Court in Ron's flat. The, the understanding, of course, is that, you know, that, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were supplying boys and, and young boys to, to these MPs, that there was photographic evidence of this and of other people, other influential people um, in, you know, in very compromising positions. And ultimately, in 1968, when the doors went through and the Crays were all arrested, um, a phone call was made by Charlie Cray to his wife at the time, Dolly. Um, and essentially, he said to her, get rid of the stuff that, you know, that is at my house. And he must have had all the, the you know, the cine film, the, the photographs, the negatives. Now, what Charlie meant was move it from the house, not mm. get rid of it altogether. But Dolly misinterpreted what Charlie had actually meant. Mm. And she got an old... Um, an old, you know, brazier outside, um, put everything in it and set it alight. And all of the evidence, all of the stuff which would probably would have got the craze off, went up in flames. Now, I'm not sure who knew about this other than the craze. I certainly don't think any of the, um, I certainly don't think any of the investigating officers knew about this. And I don't think any of the, you know, the, the MPs and judges knew about it. There was always that fear that something at some point will come out. Mm. And I think that's why they were always kept inside because could you have imagined Reggie Cray or Ronnie Cray coming out and going on to something like Wogan or uh, the Russell Hartley TV show or whatever, that going onto a, a platform like that, you know, which was really quite possible, you know, as, as we've seen in modern day, how gangsters have become, turned their lives around and become celebrities almost, you know? Um, they could have they could have come out and said whatever. So ultimately, I think the fact that they were locked up, um, key thrown away, I think it suited it suited everybody, and I think it speaks volumes that the you know the the career files, if you like, were slapped down you know with a with with a, such a heavy order on for you know not being exposed until thirty years, and then subsequently again tied down for another thirty years. So that really tells me that a lot of people will have died and passed passed on before the truth comes out because i think there's a lot of there's a lot of innuendo a lot of stuff which people have a feeling they know about but you know again we'll never know until the files are unlocked and we can have a good rummage around and have a look in um i'm hoping i'm still going to be here to find out what the truth actually was about the craze but at the moment it's all you know it's all just you know it's all just rumors and counter rumors but that is the reason i think they never got out the other reason that reg was never released has to be because he never, ever showed remorse. Um, he refused to, to apologise for killing Jack the Hat. Although he finally admitted that he killed Jack the Hat, he never, ever showed remorse. And on a couple of visits, we we ended up talking about it. Um, you know, I did say to, to Reg once, you know, why don't you just, you know, say you're sorry? You know, he said, because I'm not. You know, he says, I killed Jack the Hat because he was going to kill me. And, you know, he says... For me, it was kill or be killed. And, you know, I, I, I had no option. And I can see that in one way, but in another way, you know, to spend 32 years of your life in prison, was it really worth it? Um, you know, I, I don't think so. So, yeah, it's, 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 all, it's all, you know, it's all basically down to that, I think, that, you know, Reggie Cray was never released. As for Ron... He would never have been released. He was mentally unbalanced. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. And although now we see a lot of people who are in that, who were who diagnosed with schizophrenia, are allowed to walk the streets mm. because they're, they're trusted with a medication. I think somebody with Ron's level of paranoid schizophrenia and the fact that he killed once uh, and could kill again. And, um, you know, he walked, let's not forget, he walked into a pub in front of witnesses and shot a man at a bar stool, you know, cool dead. Mm. Um, I don't think Ron would have ever been released. And, and on the visits that I had with Ron, he, he didn't expect to be released. And he said, Steve, I'm quite happy here. So, you know, it's it, it came as no surprise. I think with Charlie, it was disappointing for him. Um, I believe Charlie was set up. Um, you know, I've got the depositions. I've got the undercover tapes. I've, I released them in a book called Operation Acid, which I sell on my website, uh, badboysbooks.net. And that just shows you the, you know, the, the, the police calls. And, Charlie Cray was the kind of person 
if you'd said to him, can you get us a washing machine? He'd go, yeah, yeah, I can sort that out. Then he'd make three calls. He'd get you a washing machine for 150 quid and he'd add 50 quid on for himself. That was what Charlie Crea was like. Um, unfortunately, somebody asked him if it could get him some cocaine and he went, yeah, yeah, I can sort that out. And, you know, the rest is history. He sorted, you know, he, he, you know, he, made, the call, he made the call. He left them to get on with the deal. Then he, he was arrested as the mastermind, 78 million pound cocaine deal. And um, that was just at the time when Reggie Cray was due for parole. And I still believe to this day that that was the reason he was set up because they thought we cannot justify not letting Reg Cray out now after he's done his 30 year tariff. How do we stop this? I know. Let's get the next, let's get the oldest Cray banged up and put the Cray name in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Um, and I've got to be honest as well with Reg. Um, you know, he, he didn't have a great track record inside. He wouldn't do any of the courses um, to come down in categories, although he did eventually drop from a category A to a category B, a category, a category down to category B prison. Um, and he did have a problem with alcohol in prison. Um, he was a, he, at times he would come off visits drunk. Uh, people would smuggle drink in for him. And he did have a he did have a tendency for for. Uh, younger prisoners in inside jail. Um, so, you know, he had a few things on his record for harassing young young offenders. Um, you know, obviously he, you know, I've always said that Reg was a closet homosexual. I've always felt that he was gay. I've always felt that Ron was 100% gay as well. He clearly was, he, although he said he was bisexual on the visit. I always felt Reg, Reg's biggest issue was struggling with the fact that he was Ron's identical twin mm. and that he was struggling with his sexuality. And I think in prison, his, his real sexuality came out. And, I, you know, I think it's well known that he had a succession of relationships behind bars. Um, but I think the fact that he was also harassing young offenders was was counting against him in the prison system as well, you know? Yeah. Um, can, can you just define something for me? When, when you were talking about birthday and, and, and young boys can you define that for me um how old because there's a lot of things yeah i mean know, again i wasn't i wasn't there i can only i can only say what my my you know my readings my you know my uh, investigations have discovered these were all the boys of 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 age However, homosexuality was frowned upon back in the 1960s. Um, I'm not talking about 11 and 12 and 13 year olds here. I'm not talking about minors. I'm talking about boys, um, young boys who were of age. Um, and I'm not insinuating for one minute that the likes of Boothby and Dryberg were into, you know, minors. Um, it was gay sex parties. That's what it was. Simple as that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just wanted to... Um... No, of course, I've seen, I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen it on there. And I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of this, you know, social media, especially since we, you know, have done various things. I've done numerous documentaries, I've done numerous TV programmes, numerous books on the craze. And with social media, it's a valuable tool for selling those things and pushing them out there and promoting them. And of course, you know, you always get people diving into your, your comments or your inboxes saying exactly that. But, you know, mm. they don't have the proof. I don't have the proof that they didn't. But my investigation as somebody who is a career expert um, can categorically say from my understanding is that they, they weren't underage. But like I said to you, there's so much red tape on the career story. Um, I could stand to be corrected in 20 years time or 10 years time, whenever some of this stuff comes out, something might come out, which is ab abhorrent and horrendous. And, and suddenly, you know, we all have to take a, a bit of a check, a bit like people who, you know, worship Jimmy Savile for years, uh, suddenly found themselves you know, going, oh my God, this is awful, you know, and mm. yeah, that, that, that kind of thing can happen. Um, and, and would it be a surprise about the craze? No, it wouldn't. But at this, at this moment in time, there is no clear cut evidence, you know, that they um, had anything to do with, with, you know, child sex rings, as, as some people like to suggest on, uh, you know, on, on different Facebook groups, etc. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people use the Cray name, especially on Facebook and on the internet. A lot of people claiming to be um, sons and daughters, adopted and all that. Can you tell me for definite um, who they did kind of adopt? And I mean, the Crays you know. couldn't adopt anybody. The Crays couldn't adopt anybody. I mean, you know, the, 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 the two people who claim to be Reg's adopted son, Pete Gillette, of course, was one. He was never adopted by Reg. 
Um, Reg was sleeping with him in prison. Um, subsequently, he turned out, you know, to, to be somebody who carried out gross gross sexual acts and, um, you know, eventually was was non-stop and jailed in, in you know, for, for those horrendous crimes. Some against his old family, I believe, mm. which, which you know, is, is, is horrendous. Young Brad was never officially adopted, although, you know, was called Reggie's adopted son. They never adopted anybody. Um, Ron had a, you know, Rob had a, Ron had a big tendency for for meeting younger guys behind uh, behind bars. You know, I've seen people say that they had conjugal visits. They didn't. There was no such thing. You know, they, they weren't allowed those visits. Reg wasn't because he was category A. Ronnie Cray certainly wasn't. And Ron was in a long term relationship in Broadmoor with a guy called Charlie Smith. Um, you know, but Ron did like to get photographs sent in by various, you know, by various people. It's one thing he would do if he if he didn't intend to get a visit off somebody, then he would ask them to send a photograph. And I believe when he when he passed away, I think he had about fifteen volumes of albums of various photographs that people had sent in. I'm just so glad he never asked me. Um, but yeah, I just think. <laughs> I just think generally, mate, I just think generally the, you know, the, the whole thing with the craze is um, the, the name the craze, the, the craze had became more important than anything else. And that was the one thing that they had to hang on to uh, behind bars. Um, you know, and I think that some people on the outside realised that they could make money out of it as well. I certainly did, although it didn't go into that plan. I didn't go into that plan with thinking this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to write a book about my experiences. Um, and that started in 95 when I was part of the Cray funeral. And, you know, I was driving, you know, I was in the eighth car. I was with Charlie Cray. I was minding them at the graveside. And I just remember going over the Bow flyover where allegedly Jack, I had been buried, if you remember the, the, how the stories used to go. And all the workmen were standing, they'd stopped work. They had the yellow hard hats on, they took them off. They had them on their chest. And they were like bowed as we went past, and I was like, "This is surreal. This, this is for this is for a murderer. There's a there's a, there's a funeral here, as big as Churchill's, and this mm. is for a murderer." And I think I had a big wake up call at that stage. You know, in 1995, I was 23, and I was like, "What what have I, what kind of world have I walked into?" You know, so I decided to document it, and that's when I started. I hand wrote the manuscript. From 1995 to 2000, I hand wrote everything from the beginning to the to, to current day about my relationship mm. with the craze. And I managed to type it up and send it to Reg and I sent it to Charlie, who by this time was in prison. And they both read it and I got feedback from both of them and they both said, good luck with it. It's, it's good. It's a basic book. It's good. We like it. We haven't got any problems with it. Within six months, they were both dead. Uh, the book didn't come out for another three years. It took us that time to, to tidy it up, to get somebody to help us do that, and then to get a publisher. Um, eventually, I got a publisher, and the Craze the Geordie Connection came out with a, a local firm in Newcastle at the time called Zimagy. Um, He did an initial print run of 5,000, and then Pan Publishing took it on, and they did 20,000 copies. So that book, written by me, handwritten, um, on paper, I've still got that paper manuscript, um, you know, did 25,000 copies. And I was blown away. And it, it ended up in a box set with Freddie Foreman's, with uh, Roy Shaw's, Lenny McLean's and the train robbers. And I was like, wow, I've gone from reading a book at school mm. to suddenly having my own, book, my own story and my own book written with these guys. Um, did the Crays have any kids? Ronnie and Reggie didn't. Um, you know, there's rumours that they had, a, a, you know, Reg had a son with Christine Boyce again. You know, is that true? I don't. I don't think so. Um, it would be very surprising if it was. Um, I've seen one or two people over the years who've looked a little bit like Reg. Maybe that's where they got the idea from. Charlie had kids, of course, but Gary, his son, tragically passed away uh, while Charlie was alive, um, and he did have he did have a couple of other offspring, but they don't have the name. They don't court the publicity, and they don't want it. Um, yeah. But you know, I guess it's always that big mystery. Did did Reggie Cray have a did Reggie Cray have a kid? Um, you know, and did he have one which he didn't know about potentially? But listen, he didn't consummate the marriage with Francis. Um, we we are led to believe, and uh, one would suggest that he probably didn't. You know, probably didn't do much with with Christine or or, or any of these other girls. So it, it's it's one of those things. None of us were there. None of us were in the bedroom. It's all speculation. You know, and 
just a little bit about that 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 scene in Legend with Francis, you know, because you know they have living, you know, she she has living family on the outside who are I'm very upset that they were never you know talked to about any of these you know films that were made, and I, and and I think the thing that Legend really annoyed me was the fact that it showed him beating Fran, like you know su- suggested that he beat her and then you know then sexually attacked her. I think that's just ridiculous, you know. I mean that that's that wasn't in Reg's nature. Um, wasn't what he would wasn't wasn't what it was like. He doted on Francis, and the one thing I can categorically say is on on probably six or seven visits that I went to see Reg, the one person he truly loved, other than his brother and his mum, was Francis, and um, it it killed him. What he what he you know what he put her through, I think, and that was his biggest regret in life that he you know he really hurt the woman that he really loved, you know, because although he may not have been able to give her something um, a, a proper relationship. He genuinely loved her, you know. There was a proper love there, and you know that was his biggest regret, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of feel a bit cl- close to the crazy. They, you, you know, um, was it Reg that died just a few miles down the road at the townhouse? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in Norwich, about nine mile away, ten mile away from there. Um, so you, you you know, and I've always kind of felt an affinity for the story, but never really sort of understood. You can watch the films and you can read the books, but until you speak to people that knew them, that you know, that actually met them, that really knew them, you, I, I don't think you 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 ever know. Um, and I think you know, you you've I've certainly learned a lot um, from what you've said. Um, so you know, I want to thank you for that. Um, just just before we finish, um, you know, you, you've, you've written books about uh, Freddie, uh, Freddie Foreman. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Freddie and, and some of the other? Yeah, Craig? I mean, I, I mean, like I say, I, I walked into the book, The Profession of Violence. I met all the major characters and I walked out the other end, you know, with an experience of meeting them all. Uh, Freddie has become a really good friend. I mean, he's 90 this year, 90 in March. I am gutted, really, that COVID has affected the... The, you know, the routine that we had, because prior to that, I was up and down to London seeing Fred at least once, if not twice a month, uh, checking in and making sure he was all right, would have something to eat, would chat about the old days. That's been denied. You know, that company has been denied really through COVID. I've got a lot of respect for him. I got to know him, you know, and, and you know, in 1995, we met at Ronnie Cray's funeral because he'd, of course, he'd lived in Spain and then he was arrested and came back and had to serve a sentence. He was actually out on day release for Ronnie Cray's funeral. And um, Charlie Cray introduced me to Freddie Foreman. And when he came out, we, we, we you know, met up and, um, you know, we, we became really good friends. But yeah, Fred, Fred is the real deal. You know, he was he was the man who who controlled London. There's no doubt about that from his uh, base in South London. And he's one of the most respected, if you know, if not the respected man um, in London, probably alongside him is Joe Pyle Senior, um, who I also got to know very well. Joe Pyle uh, was a mediator between all four sides of London, um, you know, and, and I spent some great nights in his company. Um, I'm, you know, I was there the day before he died. I, I went down to visit him with a guy called Kenny Anderson from Newcastle Panda. We went down to his house. Um, he was hit by this horrible debilitating disease, which which had caused him to lose a lot of weight. Um, and it was it was actually the night of his son Joe Junior's fortieth uh, birthday. So we went down. We went into central London to celebrate his birthday. And his dad turned up, and we spent that last night with him. And it was it, it was one I'll never forget. The next day, sadly, he had uh, he passed away. Other names and faces I, I spent a lot of time with Bruce Reynolds, the train robber, uh, the man who organised it all. Got to know him very well. He came up to Newcastle and stayed at my house, um, and we we had a great night out. Uh, Howard Marks, Mister Nice, um, another fascinating character who, you know, as a promoter, I put him on in Newcastle on more than one occasion, uh, but also went. To, to various festivals where he was performing just to go and see him and, uh, and, and have a catch up with him, you know, always a, always a great guy and somebody I miss, you know, dearly just to have a chat with on the phone. And currently, obviously I visit Charlie Salvador. Um, at the moment, COVID again, restricts us from going to see him. He doesn't like to have visits, 
uh, closed visits. So, you know, it, we're, we're left to just speaking on the phone at the moment. But with Charlie Salvador, he is somebody who um, I have known best part of 26 years now. Uh, on and off, we've fell out, we've argued, we've um, had disagreements, but that's what friends do. Um, and, you know, he's got a huge year in front of him now, 2022. Um, his parole hearing has been suspended for a year, but it's coming up in September now. And he's just hoping, as he as he hits 70, that there's a, a chance of those gates opening and him to walk out and taste a little bit of freedom, you know, because he's behaved himself. He's not the man he was in sense of, you know, rebelling against the system. He screwed his loaf on, despite them trying to, to wind him up on numerous occasions in recent years. And um, he's just hoping he gets the same chance as everybody else, because I think what people have got to remember with Charlie Salvador is he's never killed anybody. Do you know what I mean? He's he's not a he's not a danger to society. He just needs that opportunity to be able to come out and 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 you know smell the fresh air and you know and and enjoy things before he passes away and, and shuffles off this mortal coil. You know. Yeah, is it four to six years, something like that, that he's done? Crazy, with the exception of eighty days, which he got out briefly. Um, it's a tra- it's a tragedy, really. Uh, but he knows he's only got himself to blame. He knows that going up onto the roof of prisons and Broadmoor and causing millions of pounds worth of damage. Um, you know, kidnapping screws, you know, tickling terrorists, terrorists' feet with feathers uh, whilst he was holding them hostage. All of those kind of things is it's funny when we look back on it, but it's what's got him into this mess. You know, twenty three years in solitary confinement, locked behind the door, getting your food fed through a cage. Yet mm. he's still as bright as a button. Um, he's still got his sanity, and he's done well to survive it. You know, he's he's. You know, he's a hell of a character as well. And that, you know, we came to an agreement about recording some phone calls over a period of a year um, with the idea of releasing them, which, you know, I did put them out on my YouTube channel last year. It cost him six weeks of phone calls, but it was worth it because the end goal meant that people could hear who Charlie Salvador was, what his true character was, what his views were on certain things. And that plan that we had, probably worked out really well. And I, I hope that, you know, well, I know it has because I've seen the comments on, on the YouTube channel on the Charlie Salvador tapes. People, 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 people's attitude changed when they heard them. And, you know, they, they can't believe that this guy is, is still locked up. So hopefully, because he's won the case for a public hearing, he may get a fairer chance and he may get a fairer hearing and we might see Charlie Salvador come out of prison this year. It, it would be nice. I do feel he has a raw deal. Um, you know, um, I've only communicated with him on a basic level. Um, you know, he, he, he supplied the um, uh, one of the uh, uh, prologues for the um, our introductions for the book that we did together. Um, and, you know, it, it was nice enough, um, you know, and, and everybody that I've spoken to have said that is, you know, is is nice enough and. You know, I know the um, massive family speak really high of him. Um, you, you, you know, um, he's somebody that I'd love to speak to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to step out in faith and communicate with him. Um, I, th- I think that'd be nice. Um, I think uh, I'm, I am aware of time. Um, I'm aware that I think you've got another one going on after this. Um, so I will um, call an end to it. I'd love to get you on for a part two. Yeah, listen, I'm more than happy to do it, mate, 100%. So, yeah, let's sort a part two out, mate, and uh, keep up the good work, mate. It's, um, it's been great watching you progress. I mean, obviously, you started started this, and um, you've had some great guests on, mate, and that more power to the elbow. Plus, as I said before we came on... Uh, before we came on air, you know, you managed to avoid all the controversy and all the negativity that seems to surround some podcasts. So well done, you. Yeah, um, that was one thing that I said right at the start that, you know, I may get controversial subjects uh, and I may get some guests on that, um, you know, like Frank Portinari, who was a self-confessed terrorist. Um you know, I've had some great guests and, and, you know, some people that have said yes, that I didn't think they would, a Blexi. Um, but I try to stay away from the politics of the podcast. I, I don't find myself um, fitting in, into any one genre, as we said before. Um, I, I try to keep myself open to discuss anything. Um you know, if the, the 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 first season was mixed, 
if you can say anything about it, it went from recovery to uh, murder to terrorism to lots of different things, hunting Kevin Pyle, uh, which was great. And I, I want to champion a lot more women this, this year. Um, you know, I, I think that's important. Um, yeah. I don't think there's female voices out there. Um, and I, I just think it's sad that, you know, I know it gets numbers and I know, I know, I know, I know it's good for publicity, but I just don't want to get stuck in that. You know, yeah. I, I just don't think it's, it, it, it's sensible, is it? No, of course it's not. And don't forget, uh, those of you who watch this, that uh, Jack and I did a great book, uh, Assault at Heart by Paul Massey. We did it along with uh, with Kelly Massey. Um, and it, it's a fantastic read. And, you know, always be grateful for, for the work you did on that, Jack. You did a cracking bit of work. I came in at the back end of it and, and helped put it together and published it. And, um, you know, it, it, it it's a great read. And, you know, it's, it still gets great reviews on Amazon. But you can buy that on Amazon or at the website, www.badboysbook.com. Books.net. Yeah, I'll link it to this. Um, guys, uh, cheers for tuning in. Uh, I'm going to uh, sign off now and then just have a quick chat with Steve uh, before we go. Uh, thanks as always. Uh, your support is absolutely loved. Um, and I love doing this. And I love the fact that I've got my own little uh, loyal um, base of, of, of followers. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm touched and I'm, I'm blessed. Um, so I shall see you for the next part. And uh, which is, I think, Sunday with Amanda Acker, uh, a um, former uh, convict um, from uh, the States. Um, so we'll um, hopefully bring that to you on Sunday. Cheers, guys.